Well, uh, let's start with a short presentation uh, about myself. Uh, I'm Sebastian Kim. Uh, I do have an accent. Probably many people, when I preach, they try to figure out they, where my accent comes from. It's Brazilian. I spent most of my life in Brazil. But of course, I wasn't born there. Um, I was born in Argentina, actually. Uh, <laughs> yes. It gets complicated. My parents, they are from Korea. They came to Argentina because they heard about a place where supposedly the air was good, called Buenos Aires. And that's the reason why. Uh, it's not a joke. It's serious. Uh, that's the reason why they, they moved to, to Argentina. And now I'm an American, and I'm married to this wonderful wife. I have children, to, to one little boy, one little girl, uh, which are downstairs probably. And also, right now, I'm, I'm in the process of becoming an army chaplain by the grace of God. So I believe this is kind of fitting, right? This is a military text, and an army chaplain. I also have a, um, my degrees in history, which gives you very interesting superpowers, like, for example, being uh, the, the guy that cannot watch historical movies alongside with your wife, because every single time, there will be a complaint about something that the movie gets wrong. Um, but by the grace of God, uh, this is actually a text that I do like a lot, and I did preach about, I did uh, spoke about, I did Bible studies about, and also because I serve as a uh, youth pastor at CK Cambridge with the Brazilian congregation, this is something that a lot of teenagers they used to, to ask me about. Because yes, this is a very heavy text, it's very rich, but also this is the thing that, about this text, and it's not something that it can be seen in the first reading because of the amount of layers about this text, but this text is actually about the plan of God for salvation. So I'll start with a short prayer. I will invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray to you because you are a wonderful God, because we remember the plan of salvation that you had for us and how you loved us even before the creation of the world. Sometimes we are going to deal with very, very tough subjects. And sometimes we are going to deal with even questions that may not be answered right away. But we want to trust in you. We want to depend on you. And we want to, to obey you, even in times where sometimes things get so confusing. And we are sometimes even afraid of what's going to happen. So please, O oh Lord, help us. Give us strength. And teach us about this text for us to trust in you just as the people did, even when they faced such a terrible enemy. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So this is, again, this is something that, depending on where you are, uh, you, you heard the story when you were very young, and usually the story sounded very nice and very simple. Joshua defeated the bad guys. That's it, right? Uh, the walls fell down, and, and my son today, this is very interesting, uh, my son actually was talking about that on, on the way to the church, a little bit before church, and he was like, yeah, the people of Jericho, what was the name of the city? Oh, Jericho, they didn't want the people of God come, and the walls fell down. Yes, and this is true, this is true, but this is not the whole picture. And now we have a more complete picture, especially by the end of this chapter, and Yes, a lot of questions, questions may arise. But sometimes the issue is not that we have a more complete picture. Sometimes the issue is that we don't have enough of a complete, of a, of a whole picture. The issue is not that we are seeing too many trees. It's that we are not being able to see the whole forest. And this is what I want to invite you to, to, to understand. For, for you to see the text, this chapter especially, not only what the story is saying, but in what the story is pointing upon. 
if we see the big picture, if we see how this text is going to relate to other verses through the Old and New Testament, then you will understand why a passage like that is in the Bible. The passage is about Joshua, and we saw many times during this series on Joshua how Joshua points to Christ. So first we're going to talk about Joshua. How this relationship, especially from this text, is going to be actually something very rich for us to understand how God prepared our salvation. And first I'm going to talk about Joshua and Israel in general, and how Joshua, he actually points to Christ. For those who have been here for the last weeks, Pastor Brad spoke about it. Joshua and Jesus are actually the same name. It's just a different translation. Uh, things get complicated, but don't even get me started. There's another name. Probably the, the, the most misunderstood name of all is James. Uh, I kid you not. James, Jacob, Yago, Jacob, uh, Tiago, Santiago in Spanish, they are all the same name. Believe it or not. Things get lost in translation. In the case of Joshua, we see that Joshua, he is a very important figure. Because if you think, for example, that your job is like a, has a lot of pressure, gives you a lot of pressure, imagine Joshua's job. He had to be the successor of Moses, where Moses actually failed on going to the promised land. For those who don't remember, even Moses, Moses wasn't able to enter the promised land because he disobeyed God later in his life. And now Joshua, he has to raise a new generation. The previous generation died in the desert. And he has to, 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 to deal with being not only a leader, but also a military leader against a nation and other nations that they were actually pretty good at what they did. Forget these movies. For example, again, this is the historian in me. Like, uh, for example, that recent movie from two years ago um, from Ridley, Ridley Scott, I believe, where he presents Moses as some kind of, of warrior, as, that, as if, you know, the Exodus was some kind of prequel to the movie Braveheart. Uh, you see that, that where Moses is like making the Israelites make battle formations that only would come to exist like thousands of years later, or they are riding horses uh, with, with, uh, with all, you know, uh, in a, in a, uh, straightforward through, through the spears and so on. This is the kind of stuff that, you know, makes, makes me kind of cringe, right? And this is why I cannot watch this movie with my wife, because she will be, like, very, very distracted by that. But yes, forget these movies. Please, forget them. They are not historically accurate. And they are not even made for that. That's not the intention. What they want is pure entertainment, right? They want Moses like holding a sword and going to the battlefield and things like that. But the fact is, if you read the Bible, the Israelites, they weren't actually good warriors at all, especially during this period. They were a bunch of former slaves that before they were slaves, they were farmers. They weren't exactly the type that, you know, you will, you will be intimidated by. Uh, the Bible says that they didn't know how to use iron. The weapons were made of bronze, and this is a big deal. Uh, I know that for us it's like, yeah, uh, but that's a huge difference, you know, in the battlefield. Uh, that's the reason why they, they lost the Philistines so many times, because the Philistines, they knew how to use iron. Uh, they, didn't, they weren't like professional warriors prepared for war. They had a lot of experience by then, but they weren't exactly, you know, like the Philistines or the Babylonians later on or the Egyptians or the Canaanites. And they didn't even know how to use cavalry. 
they are not very good at you know, riding horses and so on. And that's interesting because you will see that repeatedly through the Old Testament. Every time, every time Israel wants to get horses, there's usually a relationship between horses, foreign nations, and the fact that Israel is not trusting God. You will see passages like that, like, do not trust in princes, do not trust in, in the riders, do not trust in chariots, or sometimes even judges. The Israelites, they're about to fight against the Canaanites, they get intimidated, they, they don't trust in God because they saw iron chariots for the first time. So there's all, all this relationship to the point that you will see later in the Bible, God himself presents his army as an army of, uh, of chariots of fire. He is the one they need. He is the warrior that fights for them. He is the one who can bring them victory because, honestly, they had no chance against the Canaanites. The Canaanites, by any means here, are the underdogs, by no means whatsoever. They were extremely good warriors to the point that, you know, before that, in numbers, when the Israelites gained intimidated and said, we have no chance against them, they were riding a certain way. They had no chance whatsoever. But God was among them. God was the one preparing them for battle. God himself will, 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 will bring to, to Joshua his presence. And this is very interesting because he's going to, to be sending the angel of the Lord, which is a whole subject of the Old Testament that I'm not going to bring here because that would require too, way too, too much time. But what we know is that Joshua has a very interesting, special relationship with the presence of God in the so-called Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is present, and Joshua knows that he has to bring the Ark because what God is going to ask from Joshua and the people of Israel is exactly the opposite that any commander will tell their, their army to do, to march around the enemy for six days, blowing horns, bring the Ark of the Covenant, and being silenced for the rest of the day. And doing that for six days. And then on the seventh day, they will do it seven more times. They, and they will blow on the horns, and they will shout as loudly, and the walls will fall down. Well, obviously, this, this is not something that we should be looking for or you should be trying for, and I wouldn't recommend doing that for sure. But this is one aspect and characteristic of God that, if you think about it, is amazing. God loves to use the underdogs, doesn't he? He loves to use those who are fragile, those who are small, those who are broken, or even those that the world will consider useless. And he makes wonderful things through all these people. Maybe you may ask why God tends to do that. Well, there are many reasons. Just a second. Oh, sorry. But God has many reasons. We could just say it's because God wants to and that's a personal preference, which could be a reasonable response. I mean, he chooses a boy to become a king. He chooses a bunch of fishermen to become apostles and so go on, right? But there's also another reason if you think about it. Think with me. Let's use our, our imagination. Imagine that you are, um, this is so like 90s, but anyways. Um, imagine that you are a Kung Fu master, right? Yeah, uh, those who are younger, before UFC, this, is, this was like, you know, you know, wow, this guy is, is, is a, you know, nobody messes with this guy. I have a black belt in Kung Fu. Even that Kung Fu doesn't have belts, but even so. Well, anyways, 
So imagine that you are like the best trainer, the best coach, and you can teach anybody to become a champion. Suddenly, this big guy comes, and he has no clue how to fight, but he comes and says, I want to be a champion. Please train me. And by the way, my name is Dwayne Johnson. I'm the rock. <laughs> Look, this is a lose-lose scenario. And why? No matter how good of a coach you are and how bad he was before he trained with you, if he becomes a champion, everybody will say, see, he's the rock. Of course he was going to win. But God, by using those who are small, by using the underdogs, by using the small, the fragile, the broken, God shows very clearly that the reason why Israel will win is not because of their military capacity by enemies, but because of his words. And we observe that in Rahab's speech when she protects the spies. She doesn't say, we're afraid of the Israelites, but she says, wow, this God is quite something. Through all the history, the history of Israel, the prophets of God would try to remind Israel, you never won this land because of your power. And even before that, before, the, before Joshua, Moses, in one of his last speeches, is going to say, remember, remember this way, these 40 years you folks have been through. Because on the day where you think that my strength made me win all of this, is the day that you are going to be expelled just as the Canaanites and the other nations before you. You see, this is a great aspect about Scripture. And this is the wonderful thing. Scripture and salvation itself is not about the powerful, the mighty, the best, the top dogs necessarily. Many times it's about those who we will never value, we will never expect to have any value or importance at all. But God chooses, and God uses them for something wonderful. No wonder, when God will send his own son to us, he wouldn't come as a mighty king according to human standards. He wouldn't come as, as some kind of a, 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 a majestic celebrity. But according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, and I love that, and this is a very important passage in, Christian, in Christianity because it deals with uh, one of the earliest creeds in Christianity on what the early Christians believed. And he says the following, that Jesus emptied himself and took the form of a servant. In the Greek, it's even stronger. He took the form of a slave. He who was the greatest of all and always had been together with the Father when he came to rescue us, he came as the lowest of the lowest. God loves to do that. And God loves to show his mighty power even through our weakness. Or in the case of Jesus, even that he wasn't weak, in becoming as he was the lowest of the lowest. That's why Paul is going to say this is, and this, is, this was one of the difficulties in missions for Paul because the Greeks and the Jews, they will be so against that. But still, that was the message of the gospel of the crucified Jesus, message of salvation, of the power of God. And Joshua, and Joshua is the one who is going to be the bridge between that 
between the fragile Israel and the one who is going to speak in behalf of God, saying, let's trust in the Lord. The Lord has spoken. The Lord has given us this land. And because of that, and his relationship with the Ark of the Covenant, Joshua is going to start to become someone who not only points to what happened during that period, but through the Old Testament and the New, he's going to become some sort of messianic figure. There will be a lot of speculations about how the Messiah will resemble Joshua. And as we know, the relationship between Jesus and Joshua is, is right there. But by the end, the, the period between the Old and the New Testament, uh, some Jewish sages, they will go beyond that. And I kid you not, these, these are historical doctrines. This is, this is even the Talmud. They will speculate that perhaps one of the messianic figures will be somebody like Joshua, who came from the tribe of Joseph, Ephraim Joseph, and he will be called uh, Joshua Messiah Ben Joseph, with, which literally will be translated as Jesus Messiah, son of Joseph. It was right there, at least for them, at the time of Jesus already. Well, okay, let's talk about Rahab then, because this is how Joshua points to Jesus. Is in a type, is in how the Messiah, in the characteristics, or some characteristics on how the Messiah will come to be. But how about Rahab? What's her importance? I mean, Joshua, I can see that, right? He's the hero. He has the sword. He's, he, he has the victory, right? But how about Rahab? Well, Rahab is very important in this text because she's not going to point to Jesus. She's going to relate directly to Jesus Christ. Rahab, as we know, she was a prostitute. She was a woman who was a Canaanite. She lived in Jericho, and when the spies, the Israelite uh, spies, they came to, to, to come to know the land, she was the one who protected them, and she actually lied. And she, and she, and she actually was siding with the Israelites to the point that many people asked, how is that right? She betrayed her own people. This is like against patriotism and so on. Uh, how is this a good thing? But honestly, at least for me, the way she acted is not, is not strange at all. We have to remember that during those times, prostitutes didn't become prostitutes for free, uh, for their free, in their free will and because of their own choices, as it happens in most of the world, unfortunately. And also, we have to remember that uh, words and ideas like consent, they didn't exist back then, and they still don't exist in many cultures. And if that's the case, that makes a lot of sense why she wanted to get rid of the, uh, uh, and get out of Jericho as fast as possible. If that's the case, that makes a lot of sense. And actually, the walls of Jericho, they will have a totally different meaning for a woman like Rahab. And that's the interesting, th the interesting thing. The way that she comes to realize that the God of Israel is the real and living God it's very surprising. We see that in Joshua chapter 2, right? We see that uh, when Rahab, she approaches the spies and she convinces them for them to promise to spare her life and her, her families. 
her family, what's going to happen is that she's going to say, but I heard about what God did by drying up the sea and defeating the kings before us. And not only me, but the people already knew about it, and we trembled by hearing about what God did. If you think about, this is very closely related on how we came to Christ. The components are all in there. Rahab hears about the mighty words of God. She believes, she understands that she needs to be saved, and she trusts in the promise that she will be saved, and eternally saved here from the destruction of Jericho. Does it sound familiar? If you think about it, you also heard about the great works of God, not in drying up the sea, but at the cross of Christ. And you came to realize that you needed to be saved. And then you came to trust in the promises of God and live through such promises because of the guarantee that you had at the cross. Rahab is actually very relatable in this passage. Probably for some, the most relatable person in this passage. Because she was a prostitute, broken, hopeless. And from this moment on, after this whole event of the fall of Jericho, God will make something wonderful for her. The Bible says later on that she will marry a man called Solomon. So he will, she will no longer be a prostitute, but she will become a wife. And then she will bear children. She will become a mother. And then a grandmother. And interestingly enough, her, 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 her family tree will be traced through the Bible in multiple places to the point that when we reach the gospel according to Matthew, she appears again as the great ancestor of no one but our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, yes. Jesus wasn't a pure uh, Hebrew in many ways. And this concept this is a modern concept. And the people of Israel, division by race as we know it, didn't exist, exist back then. She, Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, was actually the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ. And she was instrumental for, the, for how God will use her to bring salvation for you and me. We talk about how God loves to use the broken. Well, this is another story on how God will not only use them, but prepare even our salvation through people broken, just like that. This is wonderful, because Joshua points to Christ and his function. And Rahab relates to how Jesus will come in this world from such a text that you wouldn't imagine that will have so many uh, implications. But then, how about the Canaanites in Jericho? What's the point of this whole thing? What's the message that God has about this aspect in this text? Well, this is the hardest part, isn't it? I'm sorry. So what happens is that for us to understand this, we have to understand the whole Bible. I'm sorry. Just, I will try to abridge this as fast as possible, but let me just say the following. The history of Canaan 
is going to go through Genesis to Revelation. Canaan, for those who don't know, he was actually the grandson of Noah. And he's going to be cursed for a terrible event that's going to happen after the flood. Some people try to relate that with uh, racial interpretations which are absurd because we know that the Canaanites actually were closely related to Europeans. Towards Spain and Europe, they're actually Canaanite words. The Canaanites, they were actually uh, a very uh, powerful nation. They kept themselves being very, very powerful in a more stable way than Egypt, Babylon, and so on. How strong they were, let me tell you, those who are younger, this is actually awesome. They defeated the Romans. And how they defeated the Romans? They took war elephants from Africa. They brought them through Europe to cross the Swiss Alps during winter. And they steamed the Romans because nobody would have expected such things to happen. Not even in a video game you could be able to pull something like that, right? That's how strong they were. It's confusing because they had different names. Canaanites, Phoenicians, uh, Punics, uh, and depending on the city, Cart Cartesians, and so on. They had, nobody knows how they call themselves, but they had all these names, but they are all the same population. And the fact is that, yes, exactly as I said, when Joshua was commanded to face the Canaanites, nobody in their same mind, they will be considering that an easy task. And that's why God did what he did. This, this may sound very rough, right? I mean, understand that. The text keeps, keeps saying things like, you know, especially verse 21. They, when they defeat them, they devote all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, uh, donkeys, and so on. Just, if this is going to help you, let me just tell you the following. First, through all church history, this text was always considered a very unique situation that shouldn't be repeated, and this is not a commandment for us to do that. This is a very specific situation. You can see that in the church fathers, in the reformers, nobody's going to come saying, oh, you should do that because they did so, because if that was the case, a murdering would be okay just because Cain murdered Abel. That's not how narratives work. But still, well, let me also tell you that between academics, nowadays there's a huge debate if this passage is actually a description or an expression. Because you can notice there's a, a lot of parallels, right? Older, younger, man, woman, and so on. And we know, historically speaking, we have intellectuals like uh, Richard Hess, uh, professor of Old Testament. We have uh, Kenneth Kitchen, a very famous uh, Egyptologist. And they are going to argue that actually, uh, you see that in Egyptian culture, uh, sometimes they use terms like that, but it's not that they are exaggerating. It's that this is a proposed term that is supposed to be used in situations like that. So for example, you know, imagine the following. Imagine that historians from 100 years from now, nobody will remember about baseball. Sorry if somebody here is a baseball fan, but I'm just, it's just, you know, just imagine that. And historians, they are going to bring the conclusion that the Red Sox were a gang from the 21st century that they used to be bloodthirsty and they will kill people and they were terrible and people were afraid of them. Why? Because they will have an old document, a piece of newspapers stating the Red Sox decimated uh, the Dodgers. <laughs> and this has happened, actually. These things do happen. History is a, is a funny subject, I must say. 
So there is that theory. Um, and there's a lot to be discovered because documentation about that period is very ancient. And you know, when the gap is too, it's too long between us and them, things tend, tend to get sometimes confusing. But what we know is this. What we know is that in the Bible, this is not simply a figure of a battlefield, but the way this description of the marching through the city, of what God is, do, is commanding uh, Joshua and the Israelites to do, is actually some kind of trial. It's a judgment. It's something that is not happening just because they wanted to get rid of the Canaanites. But if you see the whole picture, you will see that actually God gave them multiple opportunities for them to repent. If you in Genesis, God says to Abraham that he waited 400 years for them to repent. And then the events in Sodom and Gomorrah, who are Canaanite cities, we come to know that they didn't change it. They continued doing what they did. And we have young people, so I will, I will try to be as subtle as possible. But one of the things that shocked not only Israelites, but also Greeks and Romans, and believe me, Greeks and Romans at the time were far from being pacifists at all, is that they will, make, uh, they, will, they will commit human sacrifice, especially of children and many times of their own children in exchange of vic military victories given by their gods. We have even documents uh, when, when Carthage uh, was about to lose to the Romans, uh, they sacrificed 300 children. And when things got even worse, they thought, oh, maybe it's because we didn't sacrifice the proper children, and they sacrificed 200 children from noble birth. So it's like, it's terrible. Even the Romans were shocked by the way they, they did this kind of stuff. And then the God continues to, to, to call them for repentance. We know that during the times when God is going to defeat the gods of Egypt, and, and the Canaanites hear about that, they're shocked, but they don't repent. And finally... One generation later, when Joshua and Israel finally come, they are given seven days for them to repent. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, if I'm not mistaken, it's very interesting. The author of Hebrews states that the problem is that the, the Canaanites continued in their disobedience. So by the time the walls in Jericho fell, everyone who wasn't there was Every single person who wanted to stay there, insisted to be there, and wanted to be there until death. And the judgment happened. They got judged, and they were devoted to destruction, which is not human sacrifice, but it's the practice of justice. Yeah, I know. This is the depressing part of the text for some. It's like, not, this is not the kind of stuff that we are used to read from the Bible. But let me just bring the following. It may sound shocking for you, the idea of, you know, justice being applied on killing somebody. And this is not exactly murder in the Bible. But for the ancient people, for example, the idea of putting somebody behind bars for a lifetime, that would be considered barbaric. So different cultures work in different ways about these aspects. Okay, but what is the text about then? It's about the judgment of God and how God is going to judge the sin of the Canaanites. But this is not the end of the story. Because as I say, this story about God and Canaan is going to go through all the scripture. And in a very abridged way, this brings a very, very long and very important subject of the scriptures. And the subject is that sin separates. 
that sin destroys, that sin brings deformation. The first thing that Adam is going to do when he's caught by God is that he's going to sever his relationship with God by saying, the woman that you gave me, she is the one. And also he's going to sever his relationship with Eve by saying, she is the one to blame. Later on, you know the story is probably, Cain is going to murder his own brother Abel. And separation and murder and separation and murder and, and so go on and so go on and so go on that by the, 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 the moment we join uh, uh, this text, we come to realize that these nations, they are all in war. But the promise of the gospel and the promise that God made to Abraham that from the seed of Abraham, all nations will be blessed is going to be accomplished through the history of Israel in the, in the point that God is going to fix things all new through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that sin separates, but Christ is the one who brings real reconciliation. It's not coincidence that when a Canaanite woman having her daughter demon-possessed. And look how interesting is this text. The Canaanites, they were new for having disposable children. But this woman cares about her children, right? She doesn't go to other gods. She goes to Jesus asking, please, please help my daughter. And Jesus, after confronting her a little bit, he heals her daughter and he says, you can go, your daughter is already healed. In Jesus, people from all nations, they used to be enemies of God or Israel. They start to come together through the cross to the point that even the book of Acts, one of the last places, the last city where Paul is going to stop by to meet some Christians before he goes to Rome to, as we know later, he's going to be martyrized, is the city of Tyre, a Canaanite city. And these things are going to develop through church history in wonderful ways. The term Trinity comes from a theologian from church history called Tertullian. He was also martyred. He was Phoenician slash Canaanite. Some of the early martyrs, like uh, um, Felicia, she's going to be martyrized. She was a Canaanite. And even in ways that we cannot imagine. Uh, the Bible that we are reading right now through the letters from the alphabet, and this alphabet is not Greek. The Greeks claim that it was theirs, but actually it's from a Canaanite origin. And even the Bible that we read, the word Bible comes from the word Canaanite. That was the name of a city where people used to exchange papyrus, and the name of the city was called Biblos. <laughs> Look at this, it's wonderful. Nations were enemies and separated because of sin. They are joined together in Christ. Those who, who were living in a place of enemy, en on, on destruction, of being placed one against the other, were brought together in the cross of Christ for everybody who listens and believes to be saved. And when we reach the Bible in the text of Revelation chapter 7, when John sees a great multitude, he sees a great multitude, not only of Israelites, but multitudes from every nation, every tribe, every language, proclaiming glory be to God and the Lamb. So 
This is what this text is about. It's about the temporary situation on how God was making and bringing the building blocks on how God was going to bring his people, independent from which nation they were from, and for them to rejoice in him forever through the work of Christ at the cross. For sin might have separated us, but we are one in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And just as Joshua points to the Messiah and how, uh, how Rahab relates to the Messiah, the story of the Canaanites relates on how we, who were Gentiles, we are, although sin separated us, we are going to be healed only in Christ. And the only in Christ is that we can have the real solution for the big issue that we have among us where each one of us tries to claim to be better than others just because of our language, of our ethnic background, or because of the country we come, we come from. We belong to a different nation, a different kingdom, a greater kingdom from a greater king. Just to finish. <clears throat> oh, I'm a little bit sick, I'm sorry for that. But just to finish, let me say the following. If there's somebody still here who is asking to themselves, but cannot this, don't you think that this passage still can be used for people to justify massacres, for people to justify genocide, for people to justify horrible things that can be done in the name of God by texts like this? Well, usually when people ask me, I, I, I answer in two ways. The first answer is no. Throughout church history, people always understood that this text is an exception, period. But on the other way, I can see why some people will do that. I can see how some people will use the text, text like this to justify genocide and horrible things. But let me tell you something. Only if you don't understand what the Bible is about. Because the Bible is not about you. The Bible is not about how great you are. You are not Joshua rescuing Rahab and destroying the Canaanites. You are not Moses bringing the Ten Commandments. You are not God. You are not Jesus at the cross. If you are somebody in this text, let me tell you who you are. You are like a poor prostitute broken and hopeless, that had no prospects about what will happen to her, and all she could do was to trust in the promise that she will be saved when the walls fell down. This is you. And remember, for those who believe, remember then how great it was the sacrifice that was paid for you to be saved. Never forget, not only the cross of Christ, but how God prepared the way for Christ to die for you. Even before you were born, even before things came to be, even before the creation of the world, where he knew you and he loved you. And for those who don't know him, or you are still in doubt, and sometimes you still want to know more about this, let me just tell you the following. Just as the people were hearing for these trumpets, 
hear the trumpets, and hear the proclamation of the gospel. Come, listen, hear, and believe, for everyone who believes will be saved. Let's pray.